power there these days. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, this week, queer global activist Peter Tatchell was arrested in Qatar, protesting about LGBTIQ human rights ahead of the World Cup. And I had the great pleasure of chatting with Peter this afternoon. And Peter begins our interview by talking about his protest and the circumstances of his arrest. At about midday, I got myself in a position in front of the National Museum of Qatar on a very busy main road and then uh, took off my shirt to reveal a T-shirt underneath emblazoned with the slogan and hashtag Qatar anti-gay. I then took out of my rucksack a placard that had been concealed inside a newspaper and displayed that to passing drivers and pedestrians. The placard said, Qatar arrests, jails and subjects LGBTs to, quote, conversion. This was a reference to Qatar's secret gay conversion centres where LGBT plus people can be detained and subjected to extremely abusive and damaging so-called conversion treatments to turn them straight or cisgender. Um, I know a young Qatari gay man who was put in one of these centres. He found the whole experience so emotionally traumatising. He described it as a form of psychological and religious brainwashing. But he emerged so broken by that experience that some months later he committed suicide. So it's precisely that kind of abusive treatment of LGBTs that I want to highlight in my protest. And of course, if you were a, a queer citizen that did that protest, uh, the consequences would have been extremely dire. Absolutely. In fact, while I was standing on the pavement with my placard, a Qatari woman came over to me and said, you better put that placard away. Uh, this is not permitted in Qatar. You're going to get arrested and you'll end up in prison. So people there know the consequences of protests. You know, you end up in a very bad place. Um, amazingly, though, I was able to stand on the pavement um, for 35 minutes before the police and security services arrived. Um, during that time, it was very fascinating to see drivers leaning out of their windows and pedestrians coming over and gawping in disbelief that anybody would dare protest in their country because they know the consequences. Um, but eventually, as I said, after 35 minutes, um, state security officials arrived in three unmarked white land cruisers, followed soon afterwards by police. Um, I was immediately surrounded and my placard was taken. I was warned that what I was doing was illegal and could have very serious consequences. Um, then um, they noticed that my colleague, Simon Harris, also from the Peter Tatchell Foundation in London, was some distance away, but they saw him with a camera. And their immediate fear was that someone was photographing this protest and the messages would get out to the wider world. 
So they rushed over and confiscated his camera and deleted all the photographs and videos of the protest. But fortunately, just before that happened, he'd uploaded and sent to London some of the video and some of the photos. Um, in fact, at that point, their interest shifted to Simon rather than me. I think they probably suspected he was an unregistered journalist. You know, you can only be a journalist in Qatar if you're registered and approved by the state authorities. And I think they were fearful that he was unregistered and therefore acting illegally. And, and again, he could go to prison for that. But he hastily reassured them that he was with me and part of the foundation, that this was a human rights protest. Uh, nevertheless, they, uh, the police photographed all our documents, our passports and all the stamps in it, our boarding pass for the onward flight to Sydney that night. Um, and in particular, all Simon's other documents like travel insurance, his, his COVID certificate, um, even where he was staying in Sydney. They, they were very obsessed about who sent you here and where are you going and where are you going to be staying in Sydney. Uh, it was quite sinister, but they were they were fairly friendly. They weren't aggressive or threatening. Uh, they were firm, but polite. That's, how, that's the way I put it. Um, in total, there were nine state security and police officers. Uh, and it was very clear that the state security people were directing the police what to do. And all of them were constantly on their mobile phones, I suppose, because they'd never had to deal with a protest before because protests are illegal and no one dares do them. So I presume they were phoning higher ups in the government to get instructions on how to deal with this. Um, so eventually, after being detained on the sidewalk for 49 minutes, we were told we were free to go. Prior to that time, we were not allowed to leave. We weren't even allowed to go to a shop just a few yards away to get a bottle of water. Um, we were told that um, it would be in our interests to go to the airport now, immediately, and get on that flight to Sydney. Um, we weren't threatened, but I got the strong impression that it would be, you know, it would be the sensible thing to do that if we didn't do that, we might get into more trouble and they might change their heart and minds about what to do with us. So we hiked off, hiked off to uh, with a taxi to the airport. And I've got to say that even as we went through security, through immigration, uh, we were incredibly nervous because we had this constant fear that maybe after being released, higher ups might countermand our release and we might be arrested and detained at the airport. It wasn't really until we were on the plane and had left Doha and were inter in international airspace that we felt safe and relaxed. Peter, you must be uh, urging uh, international football teams to boycott the World Cup. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? Absolutely. But I think at this late stage, it's not going to happen. The real point is that Qatar should never have been given the right to host the World Cup, given its appalling human rights record and its clear violation of FIFA rules. Uh, FIFA says that discrimination in football is not allowed. Yet we all know that if a Qatari footballer came out as gay, 
he would be more likely to be arrested and jailed than be selected for the Qatar national team. That's discrimination and it's against FIFA rules. Yet FIFA is not doing anything to challenge this discrimination by the Qatari regime. What about sponsors? I mean, surely they could pull out. Well, again, I think now things are so set in stone that is probably unlikely. I mean, I think the biggest things that that should really happen, the most important things, are for other national teams to follow the lead of the Australian footballers, the Socceroos, who made a fantastic public statement in defence of human rights and criticising Qatar's record. That was exactly the right thing to do. And it really shows that those footballers have a maturity way beyond most others. They've got a social conscience. They knew that it was the right thing to do. I hope that other football teams will follow their positive example. I also am urging and appealing for football captains of the national teams to just take 30 seconds during their post-match press conferences to criticise Qatar's abuse of LGBT women's and migrant workers' rights. Just 30 seconds. That would have a huge impact if if it was repeated time and time again. It would reach hundreds of millions of football fans across the world and add to the pressure on the Qatari regime to reform. What hopes do you have for Qatar changing its human rights record on LGBTIQ issues and rights? It doesn't sound like they're going to change no matter what happens. Well, you know, when FIFA granted uh, Qatar the right to host the World Cup, uh, it was on the condition that Qatar did improve its human rights record. That was an obligation, a condition of getting the World Cup. But since then, there has not been a single reform in Qatar on the rights of women or LGBT plus people. Not one single reform. There have been some improvements on the rights of migrant workers, but not nearly enough. You know, recently, migrant workers have complained of unpaid wages, of being forced to live in overcrowded slum hostels, and being refused permission to change jobs to escape abusive employers. I'm sure you all know that about six and a half thousand migrant workers have died in Qatar in recent years. Uh, Well, in the last 12 years. Um, Yet even today, many of the families are still waiting for compensation. So, you know, Qatar cannot be trusted. You know, they're making noises that they will respect and accept uh, LGBT plus fans. But that's just not worth the paper it's written on. You know, they cannot be trusted. You know, on, on, on the LGBT plus issue, they promised that fans would be able to wave the rainbow flag in the stadiums. And then earlier this year, they recanted that and said, no, they won't. And then in response to the backlash, they said, oh, yes, they will. Well, you know, they flip flop and change all the time. Their assurances, which FIFA has accepted as face value, very shamelessly, um, just simply cannot be trusted. Peter Tedgel, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Wonderful to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much. And um, please help the struggle for LGBT plus rights in Qatar 
by posting on your social media information about the abuses using the hashtag Qatar anti-gay. That would really help amplify the message that Qatar has to change. Because if we all do it, if, if hundreds of thousands of LGBTs around the world do it, we can get going viral and really push the message out to the wider public. Absolutely. And Peter, thank you so much for your passion and your activism to highlight these issues. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Do have Gabrielle DeVitri, the Greens candidate for Richmond in the studio. Welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me back, James. It's great to chat, great to chat in person. Yeah, last time we talked it was uh, across Zoom, as the whole world was across Zoom in, what, 2020? Yeah, I had a cat on my lap. You'd just uh, become the mayor, which was pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, and now um, on to other things. You are the Greens candidate for Richmond. Uh, what are people telling you in the electorate? Uh, people are really excited about voting Greens. They can feel that change is in the air and they're really ready for that change, I think. Um, they're telling me that they're scared about climate change. We're seeing floods and we're seeing, you know, potential flight fire season coming up. They're watching as Labor's pouring fuel on the fire by opening up new gas uh, projects and extending the life of our coal-fired stations. They're telling me that they're worried about housing affordability as well, um, rising rents, cost of living... Um, there's lots going on. People are struggling to keep their head above water. Um, and, and feeling squeezed out of the area, no doubt, with those exorbitant rents. Absolutely, yeah. People don't expect to be able to, if, they're not, if they don't own a home already, they don't expect to be in the area for very long. They know that rents are rising. They, they think, and they'd probably be right, at the rate that we're going, a lot of people who are renting right now are just not going to be able to afford a home of their own. Um, and they are kind of sick of the same old, same old. So... That's why I think people voted for progressive politics like never before in the federal election and they saw the world didn't implode. And so they're really excited to be, you know, voting with their values again at the state level. You sound really optimistic. <laughs> I am. We, we're, we've got a program to knock on almost every single knockable door in the electorate and we've already, I think we've knocked on over 9,000 already um, or, or coming to 10,000 doors so we've got a really good feel of the mood on the ground and we open door after door and we hear, yeah, don't waste your time. I'm voting green. So change is afoot in Richmond. You really believe that? I feel that, I feel that we're in for a change. I mean, I don't want to jinx it, 
but I think people are really excited about voting green. So how's that going to translate, do you think, across the state? I mean, what's your polling telling you? I think that we're going to I, – I, I mean, there's no risk of a Liberal government. I think I don't – I almost don't need to say it. I don't think we're going to see that. Um, I think what we're going to see is a Labor government returned with a smaller majority and a stronger crossbench with lots of green, strong, progressive voices that can push the next government to do better and hold them to account. So you don't envisage Labor losing so many seats that they're in a minority government with the Greens? I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but some, some journalists are pushing that possibility. Yeah, I mean, Labor and Liberal would like you to think that that's the worst possible outcome, you know, that things are going to go into complete disarray. But we saw we got the, the best reduction in climate emissions that we've seen in 2010 when there was a minority government um, and collaboration with the Greens. There are countries around the world that have multi-party governments um, and and the, their their universe doesn't implode. So it's actually the, there's a different kind of politics that's possible and people are seeing that the two-party system just doesn't work for them anymore. Yes, indeed. Uh, there's a lot of um, optimism that you're hearing. There's a lot of negativity that you're hearing about the old party system. Uh, and climate change and, and, and rent affordability, they're the two big issues. Absolutely. We've got 55% renters here in the electorate of, um, of Richmond, and that's compared to 29% renters across the whole of Victoria. So it's a really high proportion of renters and they are feeling the squeeze. Of course, you're one of a, of a, of a, of a plethora, if you like, of queer candidates in Richmond. Is Isn't that, it great? <laughs> it's really exciting. Um, how did that come about? I mean, you know, a couple of cycles ago, that would have been unheard of. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I think we have a high number of queer um, people in our population. I think, like, this is the kind of queer centre of Victoria, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I think that, in a way, that reflects our community. Um, and I think that um, queer voices are being elevated as well, uh, and I think that can only be a good thing. What's your response to the really kind of, you know, insightful kind of fear-mongering around um, our community that kind of the Liberals have been dog-whistling on and some of their kind of, you know, candidates have been doing as well? Mm, um, I'm not going to presume to know exactly what your, like, the specific instances, but, I mean, the, the our Liberal... Um, the Liberal Party has been absolutely despicable when it comes to the ability to discriminate against LGBTIQA plus people in our community. And, you know, they're looking to reintroduce laws that would allow religious schools to discriminate against LGBTIQA plus people. Yeah, they won't bring back those exemptions. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the Greens are seeking to strengthen that legislation that prevent schools and organisations from being able to discriminate against staff, against students, against service users um, on the basis of their sexuality or their identity. How would you rate the Andrews government's performance on LGBTIQ issues? Oh, that's a good question. Um, look, they've supported some good initiatives. Um, they collaborated with the Yarra Council when it came to the Pride Festival, which we were stoked to have here, just like such a wonderful celebration. They've also opened up the Vic Pride Centre in, um, in St Kilda. We would love to open up a community hub here in the electorate of Richmond. Um, those are two pretty big, shiny, excellent um 
excellent initiatives that they've shown, but I think that there's a lot of work to be done so that our community-led organisations have the support that they need. I'm hearing from parents who are really worried about their kids' um, ability to access the healthcare that they need. Um, I'm hearing from um, our queer community about the lack of access to um, appropriate um, health services, the social connections that they need. So I think that there's actually, there's a big gap when you look underneath the surface of these shiny announcements. Um, there's a big gap in our in our service that we need to address for our queer community. What about law reform? What mm. law reforms would you like to see? Um, we'd like to see a strengthening of the Equal, Equal Opportunity Act to prevent the faith-based schools from um, discriminating, um, as well as the Human Rights Equal Opportunity uh, commission to give them stronger powers, expand the anti-vilification laws to protect our LGBTIQA um, plus community um, from being victims of hate crimes um, and making public harassment based on um, LGBTIQA plus characteristics a crime. I think I keep missing out the T, don't I? It's a weird, weird thing that's happening to me today, but I don't mean to. I keep noticing. I'm sorry to all those trans people out there whose identity I'm weirdly missing out in this interview. What about sex workers? You must be pleased with the government's decriminalisation. Absolutely. Fully support the decriminalisation of sex work and very happy to see that Labor uh, moved on that um, in collaboration with Fiona Patton. That was really great to see. And, and of course, with the support of the Greens. So, Gabrielle, what kind of local member will you be if you are if you are elected to Richmond? Well, I've been here in living in this electorate and working in this electorate and fighting for this electorate for the last twenty years. Um, whether it's as an artist, as uh, you know, studio manager, um, fighting against the East West Toll Road, working at Refugee Legal, as your mayor, um, I've always fought for this community and I've always been on the ground. And I think. Um, you know, the community knows that I will always have their back. So I'll be a really strong, independent voice for Richmond, fighting for what this community needs, but also fighting for the bigger picture, stronger action on climate, housing affordability, rent caps, things like that. You were, of course, the City of Yarra's mayor, as you said. Uh, what was the biggest political lesson that you learned in that role? Politics can be brutal, but there is a reason why I'm there. And I saw that the the harder it got, the more determined I became to actually fix the structural problems that I could see at a systemic level. Um, it just made me stronger because it, I think especially being a young woman um, in politics, it can often be rigged against you. Um, and actually, I really wanted to be able to push through to clear that pathway for other people who might be in the same position as me so that it becomes easier and easier for anyone to see themselves in, uh, in the institutions of government. Do you think that because you were an openly queer mayor that that has contributed to the scenario that we have where there's at least four out queer candidates for Richmond? Do you think that you had something to do with that? Because they knew you were going to run, so they're like, well, we're going to have to put queer people up against Gabrielle to try and, you know, um, have a shot. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the thinking was behind that. But I think that it does. Like, you, you can you – can, if you can see yourself in that – role, then it actually opens up the door so quickly. I know that my understanding of my ability to um, to be inside the institutions of government was inspired by seeing fierce young women getting in there and, you know, speaking truth to power and really rising up, whether it's Greta Thunberg or whether it's AOC or whether it's 
Jacinda Ardern, like all those women just grabbing the bull by the horn and going for it was just so inspiring. So I think that, yeah, if I can inspire someone else who's, uh, you know, a a queer person or a woman or a parent um, to actually go for it, then, or, you know, a short person, (laughs) like, I think that that's, I think that's fantastic. And I, and that's one of the reasons why I've persisted Gabrielle DeVitri, the Greens candidate for Richmond at the upcoming state election. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me.
Mother there at the river. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Joined by actor, producer Matthew Connell to chat about Low, which is a happening thing at TheatreWorks. It's a Victorian theatre company production that's happening November 8 to 12. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on this fabulous drizzly afternoon. It is a very exciting play. It's Bonnie and Clyde-esque. Tell us all about it. Yeah, well, it was written by Daniel Keane, prolific Melbourne playwright. He wrote it in 1990, and um, it is very, very rarely done. So um, we have wanted to do it for about four years now, um, but it just keeps getting delayed and delayed. And we're finally here. We had a season in May, but then um, I got COVID, so it's been postponed. And now November 8 to 12, we're finally doing this play. So it's a it's a Bonnie and Clyde tale. Um, it's two... Um, yeah, in their 20s, a couple, they're kind of down and out. They don't really know 
um, what to do with themselves, but they know that they need to get ahead. So they start robbing night stores and then they find out they're really good at it. Um, and then the whole kind of tale unfolds from there. And it's a devilish Melbourne play as well. Tell us about the era it's set in. Well, it's set in Melbourne, 1990, um, in the recession. Uh, so we are kind of evoking with the um, sound design. We've got um, a, a composer that's um, part of Victorian Theatre Company and he's making this kind of um, punkish, uh, b- uh, sci-fi almost, Blade Runner-esque um, soundtrack to it that really kind of brings the streets alive. And then we've got Chris Cheney, who's doing our lighting design. He's got a very um, punk aesthetic as well. So um, we're kind of really reviving the streets of Melbourne from 1990. So 1990 through a punk lens. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting because punk wasn't really happening in 1990. But hey, it's all about interpretation, right? And the recession and punk. You've got to see the parallels there. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it, I, I don't know if it was in the zeitgeist in 1990, but it definitely is within our characters and it's our characters in a landscape that we're really bringing out. Um, yeah. Tell us about your character, but also your wonderful co-stars. Okay, so it's being acted by myself and Veronica Thomas. Um, we play Emma and Jay. Uh, so Veronica Thomas graduated drama school the year above me and I've never worked with her before, but I've wanted to work with her ever since, um, we studied together. Um, she's just an amazing actress. She mainly works in, um, film and TV. She hasn't done a theatre show for, I think, a few years. Um, so we're very, very lucky to have her on board. And very intense between the two of you on the stage. I mean, you've had that run before. Tell us about that intensity that manifests when you perform. Well, you know, it's the space. It's um, at TheatreWorks' new space that they opened this year called the Explosives Factory, which is um, a kind of appropriated warehouse. So it's the perfect space for the play. And we've got the audience wrapped all the way around our set. So all of that intensity that we have with each other, and it does get very intense, you know, we're, we're talking about some pretty intense things. It also is very funny, I have to say. Um, but we're right there in amongst the audience's faces. You kind of can't um, escape it. What's it like for you emotionally, you know, being in this partnership, you know, that's exploring these really intense kind of, you know, devious kind of, you know, Mm. issues. Um, uh, It's about survival, isn't it? But what's it like for you? It must be an emotional tightrope. Well, it's funny because, you know, the the characters are at a very intense part of their lives and the story that they embark on is um, very, very intense and dark at times. But the way Daniel Keane writes Australian characters, it feels so close. It feels so um, uh, reminiscent and um, redolent and relevant. Uh, so it doesn't feel like too much of a stretch, actually, delivering the language, even though we're talking about things that Veronica and I never would dream of doing ourselves. Um, But that's just a testament to Daniel Keane's writing, I think. So the play, when exactly was it written? So um, it was written uh, 1990 or in the lead up to 1990. And I believe 1990 is when it was first published. And then it vanished. Yeah, well, you know, we when I first came across the script, I thought, what the hell? This is an amazing two-hander script. And so then I went and re- did some Googling to try and find some previous productions of it, and it's really hard to find anything. It's only had a few productions that I can find where it's been done, and certainly none for a very long time. And, I mean, it would translate to so many other 
countries so well. It would, you know, translate so well to the UK with mm-hmm. austerity, mm-hmm. with uh, with Eastern Europe, with the rise of the far right around, you know, economic hardship. I mean, it's got such a global appeal, even mm. though it's in Melbourne. Totally. And, you know, Daniel Keane's writing is um, very big in France. Um, that they see Lots why. of his stuff is translated over there. And funnily enough, the only kind of bit of the show I could find on YouTube was a French production. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which is amazing. They set it in this beautiful um, Parisian um, attic uh, that, the, that they had appropriated as their living space. Wow. So it really was reinterpreted for another country so beautifully. Yeah, totally. They existed in Paris. It's not how we're setting it. We're setting it um, in, a, in a kind of uh, lofty... Well, we're setting it where we're performing it, a kind of warehouse space that the two characters um, begin to live in. You must have had a ball researching Melbourne in 1990. I mean, I remember that recession. It hit really suddenly and really harshly right. in Melbourne. And so many people did lose their job. I mean, the media industry was devastated. Yeah. So many industries around manufacturing were hit. Uh, unemployment went from, like, you know, 3.8% to, like, you know, double that across yep. the state. So, obviously, in, in selected areas, it was very high. It really was a very harsh time economically. Yeah, totally. And it's funny that, you know, about four years ago when we wanted, when we began um, making plans to do this, we couldn't have known what would happen in the last four years in terms of the pandemic and now the recession that we're possibly kind of, or I don't know if we already are in it, but it's amazing timing, isn't it? That um, it's come right back around just as we're about to do this play. It's interesting. So you start performing it in May, you're having another run in early November, um, how is it different this time around? Well, we got to preview in May um, before we had to pull the show because I got COVID. And so that, you know, we, we had it all made and ready to go. And now that we're re-rehearsing it for the, um, for the season in November, the thing that we found is that it's become a lot funnier because we've done all of that work grounding it and making it um, emotionally real for us. But now that we've had a bit of distance, we're just approaching it with fresh eyes and we're just kind of dancing along the top of the language. And it's become a much um, brighter and lighter play, but with all of those levels. So in a way, the um, big break that we've had and the cancellation of the previous season was a bit of a blessing. It's interesting. So it's getting lighter, but the times economically could be even harsher when you're actually performing it in a few weeks. I mean, God knows what's going to happen between now and the 8th of November. It'll move so fast. Who knows? But that's the Australian spirit, isn't it? That's the writing that Daniel Keane um, does, where no matter how terrible it gets, that kind of Australian thing of just, um, she'll be right, really. So what's next for you? I mean, uh, what's, what are your plans after this production? I mean, you must feel kind of like, you know, that you need to find something else because after such an intense role, you don't want to crash. Yes, no, although that is always part of it, isn't it? When you give up a show or when you finish a show, you always have a bit of a crash. But I've got a play um, coming up in February. Um, don't think I can say what it is yet, but that'll be February. And then um, Victorian Theatre Company, that I am a part of that collective, we will be producing our next play in May um, of next year. Um, and I also can't say the name of that one. So, <laughs> But there are a few plays coming. Can you give us any clues? Uh, one is a Beckett. And the other is a new Australian play. Wow, that's yeah. really exciting. So you're really committed to Australian writers. Absolutely. And, you know, at Victorian Theatre Company, this is our third year or second, third year running. And 
almost all of the work that we have done so far has been new Australian writing. New writing from Melbourne, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So you're really committed to, I guess, you know, depicting our lives here in Melbourne on the stage. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's so much stuff going on at the West End and Broadway. And you see even um, uh, independent companies seeing what's going on in London and then wanting to bring it into Melbourne. But there's a really big um, gap for where our voice is coming through and where our playwrights are are coming through. And um, I think we should fill it. Yeah, so you're really going against that kind of, you know, cultural grain of, oh, if it's from overseas, it's got to be great, let's import it. And you're saying, well, actually, no, we want to produce stuff here that they want to, you know, import, that we can export there. Totally. You know, the the world is in a really weird place at the moment, and I think the Australian perspective is um, can probably go a long way on the stage at the moment. Um, so I would I would hope that more people want to do Melbourne writing. You sound really, really committed to remaining on the stage as an actor. Um, have you thought about branching into film? Um, I've done film and I've done TV um, as it comes up. You know, when you get those auditions, you do them. And if you book them, that's fabulous. But it's just, it's it's a very transactional medium. There's not much time. You get in, you do your thing, you get your check, you leave. And then a year later, you watch it on the TV. And that's great. But um, I was trained in theatre. I've been doing it since I was a kid. And and to have a character exist throughout a season um, is where I get satisfaction, as opposed to giving a filmmaker little slices of takes that they can then edit together. You don't sound like you're exhausted by this production in any way. You sound really energised, but also very relaxed about it. Yeah, well, we've been sitting with it for so long that it's just kind of become a part of us. You know, we find it really easy to talk about the production now. And and funnily enough, I don't think any of us are fatigued by it, even though it's been with us for so long. I think because there are all these new layers that are coming. Like, as I said before, now that we've started rehearsing again, there's this whole layer of comedy that's come into it that's just reinvigorated our whole rehearsal room. I'm really fascinated by that. Like, it's gone from this really dark play to still having that darkness, but through humour. Tell us a bit more about how that morphed. Well, it was just... um, The words that the characters use can be pretty devastating. And we got to a place last time where they it was existing within us and it had its truth and its reality, and it was definitely a wonderful production. But now we found that um, actually a lighter touch is a better way of dealing with um, the pain that the characters have. And it's also really funny when the tone that you have doesn't match the words that you're saying. And it's something that's very Australian. I think we all know, you know, when there's, you know, you're kind of the building is burning around you and you're sitting there just eating your lunch going, okay, well, what's for dinner? You know, it's, <laughs> we do that. Matthew Connell from the Victorian Theatre Company. Give us those details for Low at TheatreWorks. Okay, so it is Low by Daniel Keane. It's at TheatreWorks Explosives Factory from um, the 8th to the 12th of November. And tickets are available at the Victorian Theatre Company website, victoriantheatrecompany.com. Matthew, thanks so much for popping into 3CR. Great to chat. Thank you. Wonderful to chat. You are an in-your-face on 3CR. Here's Blondie.
Blondie there, and we'll catch you next week on your face. Taking his as Jimi Hendrix. face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. 
Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.